Amen, amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Let me invite you to uh, join me, and we'll continue to worship our great and glorious Savior uh, by sitting under His Word. And so I'm inviting you to join me. 2 Samuel 11 uh, and 12 is where we're at this morning. And as uh, Eric has already mentioned, we're coming to a very familiar text. I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, are, uh, have some level of understanding around the story of David and Bathsheba and then Nathan's subsequent rebuke. And so oftentimes when we come to uh, biblical stories that we're, we're quite familiar with, sometimes our uh, familiarity with them can cause us to miss some of the profound elements that are embedded within them. Uh, in short, we're going to see the gospel unfold in story form. Uh, and, and so we're going to see the reality of our sin. We're going to see God responding to our sin and the specific way by which God is going to respond to our sin. And so in summary form, what we're going to see unfold here this morning is this idea right here, that God graciously rebukes and addresses the sin in our lives for our good. Let me say that again. That God graciously rebukes and addresses the sin in our lives for our good. Now, we come to this text. This is a wealth, a treasure trove of, of, of God's Word and all that it entails and all that it uh, contains for us this morning. There is all kinds of rich truths uh, that God, by His Spirit, is going to unfold for us here this morning. Uh, and so, loved ones, I think before we do anything else, we would do well to pause. Let's ask God to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that God has for us here this morning in this text. Why don't you pray with me, and then we'll get into chapters 11 and 12. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your word, both in a broad sense, the totality of the scriptures and all that you give to us uh, throughout the Bible. But God, I thank you specifically for these couple of chapters that we're going to look at this morning. And and, and the rich uh, and, and profound truths that uh, come out of your word. And yet, God, part of what we're going to see this morning is very pointed. It's very sharp. Uh, there's an edge to what your word is going to bring to us this morning. And so, God, I pray that we would receive from you what you choose to give to us by your word. God, that we wouldn't push against it, that we wouldn't shy away from it, but God, that we would embrace and receive all that you have for us in your word. And as sharp as some of it will be, God, we thank you for, for, for the, the balm and the salve that some of it will be as, as your grace saturates and permeates this text would it also saturate and permeate our lives? And God, not only for us, but as always, we want to pray for another church in the area in this morning, praying for Mountain Christian Church and for Frank Melizzo. God, I thank you for that brother and just the good gospel work that he's doing and that that body of believers is doing. And God, we ask you to be honored and glorified in them in the same way that we would ask that you would be glorified and honored in us. So open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to know and understand all that you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the, our message this morning is Our Sin and God's Grace. Our Sin and God's Grace. And, and as we think about uh, our sin, we, we see this idea that we just said God's going to graciously rebuke and address our sin, uh, the sin in our lives, and he's going to do so for our good. Uh, but, but let's begin with this idea of our sin. And when you look at chapter 11, uh, which chronicles the story of David and Bathsheba. What, what we see in this chapter, uh, really in summary form, is the downward spiral of sin. There's this downward spiral. Whenever you see sin, there's a downward spiral, a downward decline, uh, that, that this um, delineation away from what is good and right. And that is on full display here in chapter 11. This chapter really details the spiral 
But it also serves to warn us, and it really warns us in a few ways. One of the ways that it warns us is of sin's spiral, uh, but also what happens when there's unchecked, unrepented of sin in our lives. And so let's get into the text uh, and heed the warnings that God's Word has for us. I'm going to start just by reading verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, in the spring of the, ye- in the, spring of the year, and then check out this next note, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Uh, One problem, but David remained at Jerusalem. And so the story, the setting unfolds with, hey, all the kings are supposed to be at battle, and yet this king is hanging back. Now, Now, we know what happens in the story, right? We know that David's gonna commit adultery with Bathsheba. We know that he's gonna murder uh, her, her husband, and if you didn't know, you were going to find out in a few minutes. Okay, so that's not much of a spoiler, but that's what's coming. And yet, there's this interesting note right out of the gate that when David should have been doing something, he wasn't doing something. He was hanging out in Jerusalem. And we think about the downward spiral of sin. Just make note of this, that the spiral begins when we neglect our God-given purpose. This is the starting point of the downward spiral, when we neglect our God-given purpose. Now, we often think of the destination. We think of the adultery. We think of the murder. We think of the culmination of sin. And yet, it started for David when he neglected his God-given purpose. He should have been with the army, but he wasn't with the army. He's hanging out on his roof. We have to be aware of our lives as well, the ways that we ignore, that we abdicate our God-given purposes. And you might say, okay, what are the God-given roles? What are the God-given purposes that God has given to me, that he gives to us, loved ones, it's this, that we would worship God, that we would commune with God, that we would abide in fellowship and relationship with God. Those are the God-given purposes that God has given to all of us, that God calls us into relationship with him before he ever calls us to do anything for him. And so when we start uh, ignoring different ways that we are to pursue the Lord, right? So whether, ah, I don't want to read my Bible, I don't want to pray, I don't want to worship, I don't want to go to church, I don't, that's the starting point for falling into the downward spiral of sin. And oftentimes what we do is we, we think all the way down to the end. We're thinking about the adultery and the murder. And yet for all of us, it starts back here. That I'm ignoring, I'm abdicating, I'm rejecting my God-given purpose to walk in fellowship and communion with him. And some of you here this morning, there's all kinds of riches that are gonna come out of God's word. For some of you, the very thing that you need to hear this morning is that don't abdicate your God-given purpose. And you need to be reminded that above all things, you need to be pursuing the Lord and pursuing communion and fellowship and relationship with him. David ignored his God-given purpose and it had disastrous results. The same is true in our lives as well if we choose to do so. The downward spiral starts with our, when we neglect our God-given purpose, and then we see it uh, progress uh, even further in verses 2 through 5, and what we see here is when we indulge in sin. So it begins when we neglect our God-given purpose. It continues when we choose to indulge in sin, and there's, there's a progression that's seen in David that, that actually mirrors and reflects uh, other progressions of sin that we see in other places in the Bible. So let me read verses 2 through 5, and I want to highlight a few words for us to help us see the progression, and then we'll talk about some other places we see this in God's Word to help us identify uh, just the hideous nature of this. But verse 2 says this, it happened late one afternoon 
When David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he, here's the first word, saw. You might want to circle that word or underline that word or highlight that word. He saw. Well, what did he see? We saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Right, so he, he, he sees Bathsheba. Now notice verse 3. And David, here's the next couple of words you should highlight or underline or circle, sent and inquired about the woman. So he saw her. He's like, ooh, she's pretty. Sends and inquires about her. Here's the report that comes back. They're like, uh, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that should have been the end of it for David, but notice verse 4. So David sent messengers and, here's the final word, took her. He took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Right? There's a progression that's seen here that's reflective in other places in the Bible of the progression of sin. Now the words here are that David saw, that he sent and inquired, and that he took. Here's how James describes it in James 1. He says this, desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or consider this example from the book of Joshua. Right after the people had gone in and they had conquered Jericho, uh, God says, okay, I want you to go up and I want you to take the, the community of Ai, this tiny little community. Uh, Israel should have just blown right through them, except they go up there and they get smoked. Like, what happened? And Joshua's like, God, God what's going on? And, and God responds to Joshua. He says, here's the problem, Joshua, there's sin in the camp. Right, because Achan had, had withheld some of the spoil from Jericho. And so when they finally get to Achan, and he describes what happens, here's the words he used. Tell me if it sounds similar to anything we're seeing here. I saw, I coveted, and I took. It's eerily similar to the language that we see described of David in this text. Right? It's the progression of sin, the indulgence of sin. And so let's just walk through each of these words here for just a moment. Uh, helping us to understand this indulgence in sin. First of all, he saw. Now the problem is David's out walking on his roof, sitting on his couch, because he's not on the battlefield. Right? When you ignore your God-given purpose, bad things are going to happen. That, that, that's part of this. And so he sees Bathsheba. Now to be clear, seeing is not the sin. It's not sinful to notice a pretty woman. Uh, the problem is that he continued to look at her. Uh, and some of the things that no doubt he began to think about her. And that he, he, he persisted in this glance and this gaze and, and, and continued to look at her. Right? You're going to see beautiful people. Right? You're going to see a beautiful man. You're going to see a beautiful woman. That's going to happen. The problem is when we pursue in that. And here's what's really going on with David in this moment. David looks at Bathsheba and he says, hmm, she's pretty. That's good. David is determining with his eyes, listen to me, and not with God's word what is good and what is right. Anywhere else in the Bible where someone determined with their eyes what was good instead of God's word? It's the garden. But it's Eve. She looked at the tree and saw that it was good to eat. Things work out very well for Eve? No, they didn't. Are things going to work out very well for David? No, they are definitely not going to work out well for him. See, loved ones, the problem is what David's doing in this moment is he is living by sight, not by faith. And the trouble comes when we ignore what God has said. That's what Eve did. That's what David's doing. And we choose to determine with our eyes, not by God's word, what is good and what is right. And so just ask yourself, 
do I do this? Just, do, do you do this? Do I do this? Do I determine what is good with my eyes and not by what God has said? And if so, here's what you have to understand because here's how this is going to play out. When you and I start looking at things and we start saying, this is what's good and, and I'm going to ascribe goodness to this, as we start fixing our eyes on those different things and we start pursuing those things, they're going to lead us into this place of dissatisfaction and discontentment. And as you find yourself dissatisfied, and as you find yourself discontented, you're going to start pursuing more and more sin. And you see the cycle that starts to unfold? That's what, that's what happens here with David. That's what happens in our life. Now, now, in David's situation, this is sexual in nature. And so part of the question is, do, do I do this uh, in different ways in my life? Am I looking at porn? Am I watching movies or TV shows that are suggestive or explicit in nature, that are creating uh, this, some kind of discontentment or dissatisfaction? Do I look at someone else's spouse in this manner? And all of this fueling a sense of discon discontentment and dissatisfaction within us. But loved ones, make no mistake, sexual application of this is not the only place that it plays out. Because right? this can show up in all kinds of facets in life. You can be watching a commercial or see some advertisement have the same thing going on. Like, well, that's, that's a really nice home. Kind of less satisfied with my home. That's a really nice car. Less satisfied with my car. Man, did you see her kitchen? I wish I had a kitchen like that. Right, and on and on we can go. When we determine with our eyes and not by God and his word what is good, that's where we're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt. And that's where discontentment is going to lead us into pursuing sin, which is what we see next. Right, so David sees her. She's beautiful. Verse 3, he sat and inquired about the woman. Now, I just used the word that he pursued I mean, we could use Achan's language that he coveted her. I mean, all of those would fit. And so he's like, hey, tell me more about here. Now, now what is really disappointing is this report comes back, and we're actually told of two specific individuals tied to Bathsheba. One is Eliam, her father, and the other is Uriah, her husband. David knew both of those guys. Uriah was one of his mighty men. Eliam served as one of David's bodyguards. You'd like to think both of those names are like, oh, what, what am I doing? This is out of bounds. I got no business thinking about this. Okay, okay I'm, I'm done. Something should have clicked. But in this moment, David blows right past this checkpoint. He is pursuing sin, and he fails to let any sense of alarm begin to jar him or shake him uh, into pursuing this any further. And loved ones, I think it's worth noting in this, in, in, at this point that I think there's a broader connection um, and a broader observation that helps us to understand some of what's going on here. Let me just suggest to you that David's pursuit of other sin in his past has desensitized him to sin in the present moment. Here's what I mean by this. We already know through First and Second Samuel on multiple occasions that David has taken other wives. He's got multiple wives at this point. We already know that. And so he's become somewhat desensitized to, to, to various forms of sin and sexual sin. And, and so at this point, right, once he's already rationalized, once he's already justified this, his conscience has already been somewhat deadened to it. He's already ignored what God has said before. What's the big deal of ignoring him now? And loved ones, here's what you have to understand. When you sear your conscience... When you dull in your conscience, 
when you deaden your conscience to the alarms that are meant to ring out in our hearts and in our souls, when you do that, then the alarms get fainter and fainter and fainter to the point that you can't even hear them. And our toleration of sin in one area of our life will always, always, always compromise the other areas of our life. Did you hear that? You can't tolerate sin over here and not expect it to flow over into the other areas of your life. You can't compartmentalize sin. You can't do it. It it doesn't fit in a nice, neat little compartment. Okay, here's my sin box. Don't get into the rest of my, it doesn't work like that. Right, we've used this example before, but it's like feeding a baby tiger. So you bring home this little cute baby tiger. It's cute and cuddly, and you want to scratch its head, and you feed him his little steaks. Now, you can keep a baby tiger in a cage, but what happens to baby tigers? They grow up, and what do they do when they grow up? They eat you, right? So that sin is the same way. Sin is going to grow up, and sin is going to eat you. You can't compartmentalize it. You can't keep it in the cage And David pursued, and then finally this, he took, and he took her. He took her. When sin is cherished, when sin is uh, pursued, when it's valued, it's going to be completed. But here's what you have to understand. David failed long before the moment he and Bathsheba got into bed. He failed when he justified polygamy. He failed when he didn't go out to battle. He failed when he saw her and didn't stop looking at her. He failed when they said, oh yeah, that's a lion's daughter and Uriah's wife. And he's like, doesn't matter. This is just the culmination of multiple sins that have preceded David to this point. And this is the downward spiral. We neglect our God-given purpose and then we're just indulging in sin and down and down and down we go. You'd like to think it stops there. There's one problem. Well, there's more than one problem. But one of the most obvious problems is in verse 5, and Bathsheba's like, hey, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. Well, here's really the bottom of the downward spiral, and it's what unfolds for the rest of the chapter, and it's that we attempt to cover our sin. The rest of this chapter is various ways that David attempts to cover up his sin, which, by the way, loved ones, has always been our response to sin. We have always attempted to cover our sin. Do you remember Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, and God shows up in the garden, and what do they do? They go run and hide. And God's like, why are you hiding? They're like, we're naked. And then that incredibly pointed question that God says to them, who told you you were naked? How'd you, you've been naked all along. How'd you just come to this realization? Well, because sin has entered into the equation, and that's what we do when we sin. We, we cover and we hide, and we've been doing it ever since. And so notice the different attempts made by David. The first is he sends for Uriah to come home, and he wants Uriah to go home. He's like, well, if I can get Uriah to go home, then, then, then he'll sleep with Bathsheba, problem solved. They'll just think, he'll think it's his, and I can get out of it. So you, you kind of get this awkward exchange in verse 7. Uh, David says to Uriah, um, he, well, he asks how, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So you can almost be like Uriah being like, why, why would you bring me home? to get, Like there's plenty of other guys could have given you this report. But he gives the report. Verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. He's like, well, hey man, since you're here, why don't you go ahead and go on home? And then right after that, it says that this present followed him. He's like, if I can just get him to go home. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. He didn't go home. 
And David, the next day, finds out. He's like, hey, why didn't you go home? Here's Uriah's response in verse 11. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat, to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Which both speaks to his faithfulness and his loyalty to, to David and to his country and is also a rebuke against David and his unfaithfulness in this moment. As you live and as your soul lives, I'll not do this thing. He's like, I'm gonna honor the Lord and I wanna preserve a solidarity with my fellow soldiers. So David's like, all right, well, that didn't work. Let me try something else. Verse 12, if I can't get you to go home, I'm going to get you drunk. So he says, hey, stay here today, tomorrow, and then I'll send you back. Verse 13, and he invited David, and, he inv and David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Can you see David at dinner? Always making sure the glass is full. Always making sure he has enough. Here, let me give you a little bit more. Hey, have you tried this? To the point that Uriah's drunk. He's like, surely, if he's... If he's drunk, he'll go home then. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Loved ones, there's something profound that even in this inebriated state, he's still faithful to sleep at the king's gate and in the king's couch in the king's area. And so David, feeling like he's out of options, like, well, you wouldn't go home, you wouldn't get drunk. Well, he did get drunk, he just didn't go home. So he's like, all right, now you gotta get killed because there's no other way for me to play this off as, as your kid, so I gotta take matters into my own hands. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, and in the letter he wrote, I mean, this is just chilling. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hard, hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uriah is the courier of his own death sentence, even though he's done nothing but been faithful and loyal. And the rest of the chapter chronicles the the manner by which Uriah is killed in battle, how the report comes back to David, and it's just this sick, twisted, wicked depiction of this king who, who, who sinned and now is covering it up. And maybe you're thinking, man, that, that escalated quite quickly. That went from one bad decision, and now we're off in people to try to cover our, 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 our sin, and yet we get to hear the warning. Right? This is the warning, church. This is the warning of, of what sin does and when it's not confessed and when it's not repented of. This is where it leads us. And so before we get to God's response to David in chapter 12, I think we do all well to just linger here for a moment. Let me talk about some evident truths that we see about sin. In fact, there's four of them. Here they are, just real quick. Evident truths about sin. First of all, make note of this. We are more wicked than we know or believe. Did you know that? Hey, great news, you're more wicked than you know or believe, and so am I. It's true, right? So don't, don't delude yourself into thinking me like, man, David, that guy's a piece of work. So are you, and so am I, and, and we're not that far away from doing the very same thing that David did. Unless you think I'm just making this up here, let me read to you from the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter three. Paul only quotes six different passages in the Bible in writing this. Here's what it says. No one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is not a chipper review of humanity, is it? It's a scathing 
report and a scathing rebuke of the reality that we are all more wicked than we know or believe. None of us is that far removed from what David is doing. Loved ones, we have to come to grips with what's really inside of us. We are more wicked and depraved than we know or believe. Be encouraged by that, that truth, right? But that, that's the reality, right? And, and we have to know that. Secondly, make note of this, that sin is unrelenting, right? It's persistent. It's constantly assaulting us. It's not this neutral thing. You don't call timeouts. You don't have half times. Sin's not like, hey, I'll be back on Thursday. No, it is constantly coming after us. Do you remember when Cain was so mad at his brother Abel before he had murdered him? Do you remember what God said to him? He said, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. We are constantly being hunted, constantly being assaulted. John Owen said it well when he said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. We're constantly at war, loved ones. It is unrelenting. Sin is unrelenting. Thirdly, sin is devious in its destructive effects. There's something devious about sin that sometimes you don't even know and recognize some of the ways that it's destroying you and and killing you and and corrupting you and and unraveling you. It it blinds us and deceives us because it doesn't take much sin to begin to corrupt us. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5? He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of sin corrupts the whole person. Ryan Sickinger used to have this illustration he would use. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, but, but imagine, he'd talk about these cookies. And so my wife, my wife makes, man, she makes these killer sea salt chocolate chip cookies. I mean, they're to die for, to die for. Now, imagine I brought you a plate of those cookies, and I'm dropping it off, and I'm like, hey, enjoy. These are great. Oh, by the way, I don't know how it happened, but a little bit of dog poop got in the batter when we were making it. Wasn't much, just a little bit, but here you go, enjoy. Now, how many people are like, oh, I can't wait to eat this cookie? That thing's going right in the trash or in the fire or some other place, but it's not going to get eaten. Why? Because the thought that even just a little bit of dog poop in your cookie, you don't really want to eat that anymore. See, sin's the same way. It takes just a little bit to corrupt the entirety of us, and it's devious in how it accomplishes that. And then finally, make note of this. All these truths about sin... And yet probably the most pointed one is this. It's that God sees and addresses our sin. See, as you're moving through chapter 11, you're like, really? Like, is no one going to do anything? Is no one going to say anything? How is he getting away with this? Look at the very end of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Okay, no, he's he's not going to get away with this. And loved ones, you're not going to get away with sin in your life either. And for that, you should praise God. It's a mercy of God that he exposes your sin. See, no one gets away with anything in God's economy. Did you hear that? No one. No one gets away with anything. God's going to out all of us. This is what Paul says in Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Right? You're not going to sow one thing and reap something different. If you're going to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you're going to sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap life. God sees and addresses our sin. And praise God for that, which really leads us into chapter 12. And there are two uh, distinct items about God's response in chapter 12. So I gave each of them a a, a heading so that we could look at uh, both of them. Uh, But but, but they both unfold here really in unison with one another. But make note, first of all, of this. When we think about the downward spiral of sin, that's our sin. Now we're going to talk about God's grace. 
And here's the first aspect that we see, and it's this. It's God's gracious rebuke of our sin. God's gracious rebuke of our sin. So the chapter begins, and it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Praise God for that. That God doesn't ignore our sin. That God doesn't leave us in our sin. It's this incredible mercy that God chooses to deal with our sin without utterly obliterating us. And he does so by revealing our sin and rebuking us for our sin. So hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. Rebuke, rebuke is an invitation from God to you to turn from your sin and to return unto him. Did you hear that? Rebuke is an invitation to turn from your sin and to return to the Lord, loved ones. That's what it is. But the, the problem is, 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 is we live in this day and age, and we got to understand the, 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 the spirit of, of the day that we live in. But we live in a day and age now where, where emotion and feeling drive how we think and operate. I'm not saying that that's right or correct. I'm just telling you, just look around. That, that's how we operate. And so we are this emotionally and therapeutically driven society. And what happens in that is that if something doesn't make me feel good, I reject it. I don't want anything to do with it. I just want to feel good because our feelings supersede all other things. And so here's what's happening in the church at large is, is we go, well, we have, to, we have to make sure people feel good. And rebuke doesn't really make us feel good. So maybe we shouldn't rebuke one another. And again, right, we're seeing with our eyes, not by God's word. But we have to understand the reality of what we're living in. We can't be therapeutically and emotionally driven. We've got to be driven by the word. And God graciously rebukes his people for their good. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but we can't reject things just because they make us uncomfortable. Rebuke is an invitation to turn or to, to, to return to God and turn from our sin. So here, I'm going to read the first 12 verses here of chapter 12 and let us see God's rebuke, really God's gracious rebuke to David. It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, Nathan's like, hey, David, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable of sorts. It says this, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. And so here Nathan is describing this tender relationship, almost like a pet with this lamb. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. You read that, you're like, what a jerk. And David gets it, because look at verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. <laughs> and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan's going, all right, the setup is complete. Time to let David know what's really going on. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. David, I'm talking about you. This is about you. This is what you've done. And then look at what he says next. In fact, he's going to say it twice here in these next few verses. This says the Lord, the God of Israel. He's like, hey, this isn't from me. This is from God. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I'd add to you as much more. God's like, I've given you everything, and I would have given you more if you asked. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, right? Here it is again reminding David, this is God speaking. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house and I will take your wives. This is graphic right here. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Whew. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. This is God's gracious rebuke of our sin. Now you might read that and be like, that didn't feel all that gracious, but you have to understand how incredibly gracious this is. And really over the remainder of our time, hopefully that's what unfolds and what we're able to see. But make note of a couple things. First of all, make note of this, that it's God's word that exposes our sin. God's word is what exposes our sin. Verse one, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan wasn't like, I got an idea. Nope, God sent Nathan. And that's why Nathan, not once, but twice in responding to David is saying, thus says the Lord. Right? Nathan's just the mouthpiece. He's just the messenger. But, but exposure is driven by God and God's word. God's word mercifully exposes our sin. This is what Hebrews 4 tells us. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen to what it says next. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's word exposes our sin. Loved ones, that should be happening when we're reading our Bible. Hopefully that's happening right now as, as God's word is being preached to us. When we meet with friends and we're talking about different scriptures, all of that, all of that, all of that are ways in which uh, God's word is exposing, revealing, uh, helping us to see our sin. And God's word will expose our sin. And God's word will expose all of our sin. Every last bit of it, it's going to come out. And God's going to root it out for our good. Like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that God exposing all of my sin really sounds like that's all good. That, that, that seems kind of uncomfortable. That, that seems kind of awkward. That seems kind of painful. Okay, well, let's run with that for just a moment. I want you to imagine you go to the doctor. This week, doctor says, hey, we got the, got the report back. Bad news, you have cancer. Ah, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some of it out. What? Yeah, we're going we're to take some of it. You know, if we had to take all of it out, that'd be fairly invasive. That'd probably be pretty uncomfortable. Uh, I, I don't think you'd really enjoy that. So we're just going to take some of it out. Now, no person with an IQ the size of their shoe would be like, that sounds like a great plan. Let's go for a doc. You'd be like, uh, it's killing me. You have to get all of it right. That's why God's saying it's killing you. And we're going to get all of it. That's what God's word does. It exposes our sin. Think of God's word like a mirror. Right? God's word is like a mirror. A mirror reflects what's in front of us. It's just showing us what's actually there. And so if you get in front of the mirror, maybe this morning you missed a spot while you were shaving or you missed something with your makeup or something in your teeth or a smudge on your face, the mirror didn't put that there. The mirror is simply revealing that's what's already there. That's what God's word does for us. It's revealing what's already there. Now, you ever had a situation in your life where you didn't have a mirror for a few days or a week? Maybe you go camp and something like that. What happens when you get in front of the mirror? Right? You get in front of the mirror, you're like, whoa, is that what I look like? Like, what, what happened here? I just think about your spiritual life. 
What happens when you never get in front of the mirror? Yeah, same reaction. Oh, that's what I look like? Yeah, that's what you look like. Because it's God's word that's exposing our sin. That's what we see here in chapter 12. But not only is it that God's word is exposing our sin, make note also of this, that God's people confront our sin. God's people confront our sin. So God's word is what exposes our sin. Uh, but it's not at all uncommon for God to use his people as the instrument by which that exposure comes. That's what we see here. Nathan is delivering the word to David. We're to deliver God's word to one another. That we're, we're, we're confronting one another. That, 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 that we're, we're addressing sin in each other's life. And as you think about that, two, two quick notes around this idea of God's people confront our sin. First of all, that we must lovingly confront sin in others. Now, we've just gotten soft as a society, we've gotten soft as a church. We, we can't say hard things to each other anymore. I'm not saying to be a jerk about it. I'm not saying to be obnoxious about it, right? We do it lovingly, but we need to confront sin in one, in one another. It's one of the most loving things that you can do is to go to a brother or a sister and to address the area, the aspect, the element of sin in their life. Now, to be clear, here's what this is not. Okay, this is not you giving someone a monthly report of all the ways that they failed. I'm here to give your, your monthly sin report. Here we go. <laughs> right, and this roll of paper comes out and you're just nitpicking every last year. It's not that. And it's not launching on the personal preference that you have that they don't hold to or whatever the case is. Here's what it is to confront sin in others is to address a continued or habitual uh, pattern, uh, behavior, conduct, mindset, an escalating um, pattern, conduct, mindset, unrepented sin that, that, that persists. That's where we're coming to confront. Really, it's holding the mirror of God's word up so that they can see object, uh, w w objectively. We must lovingly confront sin in others. But notice the other side of this. Look at what Nathan does in verse 13. After he just drops the hammer in 1 through 12, David responds. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. See, so one side is that we lovingly confront sin in others. The other side of this is that we lovingly assure others of God's forgiveness. So both of those should be in unison when we're going to a brother or sister, right? That there's this assurance of God's forgiveness. Nathan is assuring David of, of, of God's redemptive and forgiving work. And these elements, they, they tend to be polarizing in people, so we kind of tend to gravitate to one side or to the other. So we tend to be people who will confront, but we won't assure. We'll be people who will assure, but we won't confront. And God is calling us to be both, right? To confront without assurance. You're, you're just like Jonah. And I told you the truth, and now I just want to watch the city burn to the ground. And that's not what God calls us to. But to assure without confrontation, it's like the prophets who are saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Or the teachers in 2 Timothy that'll tickle ears, but they won't confront sin. Both of those are an abdication of biblical fidelity. And we need to be people who will confront sin, but also assure of God's forgiveness in our confrontation. This is God's gracious rebuke of our sin. But notice this other element here that we see unfolding with Nathan, and it's this. It's God's gracious substitute for our sin. And it's not just that he's rebuking sin. Here's how God addresses sin. Here's how he deals with sin. Here's how he remedies sin. 
And there's a gracious substitute that's provided. Verse 13, David begins by saying, I've sinned against the Lord. Loved ones, first of all, make note of this, that God's grace is extended in our repentance. David acknowledged his sin. Right? He, he, he didn't hide it. He didn't defend it. He didn't minimize it. He didn't rationalize it. He didn't justify it. He just owns it. But you have to understand that there can be no true forgiveness without genuine ownership and repentance of our sin. Right? There's this old saying that the, 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 first, the first step to change is admitting there's a problem. Right? Most of us have heard that. Well, th th that's the same here. You have to admit that there's a problem in order to address the problem. A and you have to admit that it's a problem. Right? Otherwise, we're just in denial. That, that, that's all that we have. And some of you, some of you are wondering, why in my life do I feel like I'm not experiencing the fullness of God's grace? There's a very real possibility that the reason for that is you're not honest about your sin. Just not honest about it. You're more concerned with protecting your reputation. You're more concerned with protecting your image. So I don't fully own my sin. I defend it. I explain it away. Maybe there's some blame shifting. Well, you know, that guy. Ah, I minimize the extent of the offense, whatever it is. But we don't own it. But what Eric read a little while ago from Psalm 51, that, that, that's David's response to what happens here in chapter 11 and 12. And one of the beautiful things about that confession there is that David owns everything that's happened. Right? There's no concern for, for what people think about him. His, his reputation, he's like, oh, I don't care about that. I just want to be restored. I just want to be right. In fact, one of the clearest evidences of true repentance is a willingness to be laid bare at the expense of our own regard or our own reputation. I mean, if you're like, man, how do I know if someone's truly repentant? They don't care what other people think. They care about getting right. That's when you know that they're truly repentant. I mean, just consider this. David, such, I mean, so wicked here, so heinous, so vile, yet this is still the guy that is described as the man after God's own heart. How could someone so treacherous, so wicked, so vile be that guy because when confronted with his sin, he owns it. Saul always had an excuse, always had a justification, always had a rationalization, always some reason as to why it is. David just owned it. Loved one, can you own your sin? Will you own your sin? Can we be honest about our sin? Can I, can I care less about others' opinion and more about being made right before God? God's grace is extended in our repentance. Secondly, secondly make note of this. In verse 13, we see that our sin is deadly. Now, we've, we've touched on this, but it shows up again. Right? David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Here's Nathan's response. The Lord has also put away your sin. And then look at this note. It's so interesting. You shall not die. Now, we might be like, well, why would David die? Well, because sin is deadly. And David should have died. Adultery was punishable by death in the law. Murder was punishable by death in the law. Da David actually should have died twice. And this is what sin does. It kills. There, there, there's a lethal element to it. This is what Paul said in uh, Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. This is what God said back in Genesis 2. The day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. That's why we return to the, to the dust. In fact, in, in uh, verse 10 here, part of the judgment that falls on David is the sword's never going to depart from his house. And so the remaining days of David's reign are going to be character, characterized by death. And it's attributed to his sin. I'm like, okay, wait, 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 wait. 
The question that begs to be asked is this, if sin is so deadly and David's not gonna die for his sin, who's gonna die for his sin? Like, how does this work? Hold on, Cliff, don't run ahead of me, brother. No, that's okay. I like how you're thinking. Because it is, it's, it's pointing us to Jesus. And it's the idea that our sin must be atoned for. That's what we see in verse 14. Right, a price has to be paid. Someone has to die for the sin. And in this instance, look at what it says, verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. See, sin must be atoned for, otherwise justice does not truly exist. Hebrews 9 says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins. And so you're like, wait, 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 wait. The baby has to die for his father's sins? The child has to die? That's what it says. That's not fair. Like, why does the child have to die? Because his dad's a moron. Right, this, this sense of injustice that starts to well up inside. I can't believe. Don't miss what the Bible's pointing us toward. Because what actually happens in the remainder or the, the bulk of this part of the text is that David will petition that his son, or will petition the Lord that is, that, to, to spare his child, that the child won't die. But God doesn't spare the child. The child ends up dying, and it's actually quite stunning and, and shocking. David should have died for his sin, but instead it's the son of David that dies for his sin, and David is spared because his son pays the price. And at one level, like, are you kidding? Like, what is going on? This is ridiculous. I can't believe this. I can't even wrap my mind around this. And yet, at another level, maybe, just maybe, what the Bible is doing is it's pointing us towards something insanely glorious. See, in 2 Samuel 12, a son of David dies for David's sin. But later on, another son of David, a greater son of David, who truly is innocent in every way, shape, and form, is going to die not only for David's sin, he's going to die for your sins and for my sins. See, because what God does is God grants his son for our sin. And in the midst of, great, of David's greatest wickedness and his greatest rebellion, God is foreshadowing his most glorious redemption and salvation. Another son is coming. A greater son is coming. And that son is going to pay the price, not just for knucklehead David, but for knucklehead you and I as well. In fact, I can make it a New Testament case for this quite easily with what Nathan, Nathan says in verse 13. He says this, the Lord has put away your sin. Circle or underline that, that, that phrase, put away your sin. It's not, a, it's not a phrase that's used very often in the Bible, just a, a handful or two of times. Uh, but one of the places that it's used is in Hebrews 9, 26. In speaking of Jesus, here's what it says. He, Jesus, has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages, check it out, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The child that dies in 2 Samuel 12 is pointing us to the future son who's going to die. But in the future son's dying, all hope and life and reconciliation and redemption is offered to us. It's incredible. It's stunning. And so you get to the end of the passage in verse 24 and 25, and you read this, and, and if we're just reading it like a story without any sense of how it's leading us to Jesus, it's almost cold and callous. The, the, the David just goes in, and he and, and Bathsheba sleep together again, and they have a son, and you're like, that, that's just kind of weird. Except it's not just that. It's a link to the fulfillment. It's a link to the promise. It's helping us to see how God is restoring this. It's the connection to the future son. That's not only going to save David, it's going to save us all. 
Now this story, this story, it's, it's riddled with sin and wickedness and rebellion, but it is also saturated, absolutely saturated with God's grace and his response to our sin, which is to give his son in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. It is stunningly beautiful, stunningly beautiful what God is doing here. And so, loved ones, as we think about the totality of what we see here, let, let me just have you consider two things here. First of all, as you consider your sin, there should be a somber, sobering sense that the, 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 the weight of our sin, the depth of our sin, that should lead us to a place of repentance, but also a desire for holiness and for righteousness. And then as you consider God's grace, that you would marvel with awe that God would so wonderfully redeem and atone on our behalf. This is our sin, and this is God's grace. He is graciously rebuking and addressing the sin in our lives for our good. Praise God for that.